This is TSC Now, a podcast from the TSC Alliance. Hello, and welcome to TSC Now, sponsored by UCB Inc. I'm your host, Dan Klein. June is Worldwide Lamb Awareness Month, so I wanted to raise awareness not just of lymphangio leomyomatosis, or lamb, but also of a pivotal clinical trial in lamb that is enrolling right now. The trial is called MILD, which stands for Multicenter Interventional Lymphangio Leomyomatosis Early Disease Trial, and the clinicians running the trial are studying the effect of early intervention with sirolimus on long-term lung function for women diagnosed with LAM who have not experienced any loss of function yet. To learn more about this trial and what it could mean for women with LAM, I talked to lead investigator Dr. Frank McCormick at the University of Cincinnati. Here's our conversation. So today we're joined by Dr. Frank McCormick. Dr. McCormick is the professor and director of the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the University of Cincinnati and was formerly the scientific director of the LAM Foundation for 25 years. So there's no better person to talk to me about LAM and LAM research than you. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk to you during Worldwide LAM Awareness Month about a very pivotal trial in LAM the mild trial. But before we get into the trial itself, perhaps to just provide a little bit of context, prior to the approval of Sirolimus in 2015, what treatment options were available for women with LAM? There were certainly no FDA-approved treatments available for LAM. Physicians were left to their own devices for what therapies they might try. And for many years, women uh, underwent hysterectomies with ovarectomies to remove any influence of hormones or received high-dose progesterone or other anti-estrogen approaches. But there was no proof that any of those was effective and they are not harmless treatments, of course. Estrogen protects women from certain cardiovascular complications, coronary artery disease, and atherosclerosis. It protects women from osteoporosis. And when you remove the ovaries or counter the action of estrogen with a drug, women become susceptible to those morbidities. So anti-estrogen therapy has effects on bone and on cardiovascular health. So can you tell me a little bit about the MILES trial, which was sort of the precursor to the MILD trial and how that led to the approval of sirolimus for the treatment of LAM? Yeah, so right around 2000, it became apparent that the mTOR pathway was central to both the pathogenesis of tuberous sclerosis and and LAM. And it was also apparent that there was a safe and effective mTOR inhibitor available for use in in the United States and, and other places in the world for the treatment of patients who had undergone kidney transplant to prevent kidney transplant rejection. So there was a targeted therapy that made a lot of sense for LAM that was available on the shelf. And there was a biologically plausible target in both LAM and tuberous sclerosis that made it made sense to trial this drug in this disease. So we approached the company who made Sirolimus, which was why 
Wyeth at the time and the NIH about willingness to conduct a trial. And because of complications with patent life and difficulty in assembling this rare disease population for a trial, there wasn't any movement in that direction. So a number of us around the country decided we would do the trial ourselves. And we obtained about eight and a half million dollars in funding from the NIH, from the FDA, from Japan, from Canada. And we enrolled 89 patients in 13 sites across three countries as an investigator-initiated study. It took us about five years to complete the trial. When we looked at the data, the patients who received the drug had stable lung function. The patients who received the placebo lost about 10% of their lung function per year. So on the basis of that study, the FDA felt that the trial could potentially support an indication for sirolimus and LAM. And after a few years of getting the paperwork together, we were able to, with Pfizer, to present that to the FDA and the, and the drug was approved in 2015. And over time, we've come to realize that the drug provides stability in a durable fashion. Patients come back to clinic. We, In general, we see stable lung function patients who are taking the drug. We found that many patients don't require the full two milligrams of sirolimus that we were using in the trial. Some require only one. And there are some patients who don't respond and who progress despite the drug, but they're in the minority. There are less, I think, less than 10% of patients have that experience. So uh, we've been very gratified by the effectiveness and safety of this drug over the last 10 years. So you kind of just touched on it, but just to restate it, how did the prognosis for women with LAM change after the approval of Sirolimus in 2015? That's a really good question. If you had looked in the literature 20 years ago for what the average survival is in LAM, those estimates were based on people who were presenting to hospitals and were already quite sick. And And the median survival was projected to be about eight and a half years, which means that following diagnosis, about half the people are are still alive at eight and a half years and half are not. But that was a very skewed population. And when the Lamb Foundation did their own survey, they found that the median survival in Lamb in all comers was roughly 29 years. So half people are alive at 29 years and half are not. So given that Lamb has such a a long survival in this population-based cohort, Approving that Sirolimus extends survival is going to take a long time because improving on 29 years median survival is a difficult thing to, to show. We know that this drug has changed the lives of women. We know that it stabilizes lung function. It'll be some time before we know how much it extends life. Now, one other thing we can look at is how often it results in the need for transplant. And that data should be coming out long before we'll know anything about survival. We don't know yet uh, what impact it's had on the need for transplant, but that's something we're looking forward to being able to highlight in the next few years. So moving forward to today, what is the MILD trial? So the way we designed the MILES trial, the original one, was that you had to be sick to enroll. You had to have a lung function that was abnormal. You had to have a lung function that was less than 70% of the norm. But the patients who actually enrolled were even sicker than that. The average lung function of the patient who enrolled in MILES was about 50% of the norm. So this drug proved we can stabilize disease in people who are advanced. And what we didn't know and still don't know is, does it make sense to use this drug very early to prevent progression to more advanced stages? So for the purpose of figuring that out, we designed a trial where you have to have normal lung function to be enrolled. And we randomized people to receive a low dose of the drug or placebo over the course of two years. And we looked to see whether the group that receives the drug has more stable lung function without undue side effects 
compared to the placebo group. So the, the objective is to find out if we can use the drug like we use drugs for hypertension and other diseases. We don't wait for kidney failure or heart failure. When a patient presents with hypertension, we treat it early and we stabilize it so that it doesn't progress to those more advanced stages. And that's the concept with mild, that perhaps we should be starting early with a low dose at the time of diagnosis before there are symptoms, before lung functions abnormal to try to keep things there. So just to clarify, right now, clinically, sirolimus is predominantly used after the onset of abnormal lung function because that was how the original trial was designed and that's what it's approved for? That's exactly right. And not all clinicians are familiar with the use of this drug, and some are nervous about side effects uh, based on what they read in the literature. Our position is that at low doses, this drug is very safe and well tolerated. And it is low doses that we're targeting in the mild trial. What are some of the potential side effects at higher doses of sirolimus? The side effects at low doses that we see fairly frequently include mouth ulcers and swollen ankles and occasional acne, elevation, cholesterol, sometimes some GI upset. But frankly, at the lower doses that we usually use in LAM, those tend to wane quickly and we don't see chronic problems with those issues. At higher doses, the drug has immunosuppressive properties, so you can see susceptibility to infection. It can actually cause a lung injury itself, and that's been seen in some kidney transplant patients, but only very rarely in patients with LAM. And it, it, there's at least a theoretical risk of latent malignancy, which means that some patients on immunosuppressive drugs can develop lymphomas down the road based on suppression of the immune system. But I've never seen that in a lamb patient. I'm not sure it occurs with monotherapy with an immunosuppressive drug like sirolimus. It certainly occurs when patients are on multiple immunosuppressive therapies, such as for transplant and those things. So how would you define success in this clinical trial? So success in this trial would be that lung function remains stable over the two-year period in patients who are taking the active agent, which is at one milligram per day, and that the patients in the placebo group would decline at the natural rate, which for LAM patients is roughly a few percent of lung function a year when patients are in these earlier stages. So the challenge with this trial has been that we're expecting to need at least 60 patients to answer this question. And we have been enrolling for over two years. We have a about 50 patients enrolled. To get an answer, we need at least another 10 patients to enroll. So we've been trying very hard in these in this last year of the trial to try to recruit additional patients. So in your mind, what are the long-term implications of this trial if it is successful? Well, I, I think that we would end up using sirolimus at the time of diagnosis in patients with LAM, even if their lung function is very mildly affected, because we do know that LAM is almost uniformly progressive. It's rare for LAM just to sit still. It doesn't make a lot of sense to wait until the lung's extensively damaged before we start therapy. And we know from lots of experience now that at low doses, this drug is very well tolerated and safe. So success for me would be that we prevent people from getting to the point where they need a lung transplant or they're short of breath before we intervene. For those who might be listening to this podcast and may be interested in getting involved, who can enroll in this trial? What are the eligibility requirements? We're requiring that people have normal lung function, which means that you have to be at 70% of the norm or better. And for those who are familiar with lung function measurements, the number we're looking at is called forced expiratory volume in one second, which is a long name for how much air you can blow out in one second with a forced exhalation. We know what that number should be for ladies of a certain height and a certain age, and we compare their number to the norm, to the mean, and determine where they sit on the 
bell curve in terms of lung function. You have to be at the 70th percentile or better. And you have to have at least some level of cystic change in your lung to suggest that you're likely to progress over the course of the trial. Because if we enroll only the mildest patients, there won't be enough of a difference between this placebo group and the treatment group. So we have certain criteria that involve whether you need oxygen with exercise, whether you have a lung function decline that's at least 60 milliliters per year in FEV1 over the last several years, whether you're post premenopausal or postmenopausal. And the algorithm is a little complicated, but basically we want to hear from anyone with LAM who has normal lung function. And we, we would work through these the, the algorithm with them to see if they qualify. But mostly it's just about having a definite diagnosis and having normal lung function. And how how is LAM diagnosed? How do you have that definite diagnosis? We published a set of guidelines from, I think there were probably 30 experts on the masthead of this paper. And you can be diagnosed with LAM in, in different ways. It doesn't always require a biopsy. If you have typical cysts on the high-resolution CT scan of your lung and you have a serum VEGFD of greater than 800 picograms per mil, which is a blood test, simple blood test, there's nothing else that does that. There are other cystic lung diseases that can look like LAM, but none of them have an elevated VEGFD. So those two things can make the diagnosis of LAM without a biopsy. If you have tuberous sclerosis and typical cystic change, you don't need any further testing. That is the definition of LAM. If you don't have tuberous sclerosis, but you have an angiomyolipoma and you have cystic change consistent with LAM, the diagnosis is certain. And there are a few other elements. If you have a chylus effusion and typical cystic change or a lymphangioliomyomas in your abdomen and typical cystic change. So there are other criteria that apply to patients with sporadic LAM. But for tuberous sclerosis associated LAM, all you need is typical cystic change on high resolution CT plus the diagnosis of TSC. And I might just mention that within the TSC guidelines, there are recommendations for LAM, for screening for LAM. And those are that you consider a screening a CT once once a woman reaches the age of 18 or so, somewhere between the ages of 18 or tw and 22. They can be done in a low-dose fashion to reduce the radiation that one receives from the CT to look for evidence of cystic change. And at that stage, about 20% of patients with tuberous sclerosis will have a few cysts. Over time, the number becomes closer to 60 or 70% of women with TSC will have at least a few cysts. So screening for LAM in the tuberous sclerosis clinic, you should start considering it at age 18. Would women with TSC who are already on an mTOR inhibitor for some of the other manifestations of TSC be disqualified from participating? Yes, they would be disqualified. And that's a good point because a lot of patients in our tuberous sclerosis clinic in Cincinnati are already on everolimus for treatment of their tuberous sclerosis. Now, their lungs are protected by that drug as well. And they, they would not be eligible for a trial that involved the serolimus. So what does participation in this trial look like? Do participants have to go to certain clinics? How frequently? What tests are done? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. So we have the trial is two years long. There are a total of eight visits. With the pandemic, many of these visits have been conducted virtually over the last couple of years. So we require that patients present to a site, a mild site at baseline and at the end, at the two-year point. But for most of the trial, patients have had many of their interim visits virtually. I'm not sure how long that'll continue, but if it doesn't continue, then people would have to travel to the uh, trial site every three months. The trial sites, we had originally had 10 trial sites, but because it's taken us so long to enroll and because the funds are limited, we've had to close some sites. So 
as of this month, uh, there'll be sites in Cincinnati and Chicago and Atlanta and Seattle. So they're distributed around the country, but there'll only be four sites uh, to enroll in the in the mile trial as of July 1. Is there any reimbursement for travel or opportunities for reimbursement for people who are interested in participating? All the costs associated with the trial are fully covered. There is no stipend beyond covering expenses, but the hotel fees, the airline tickets, other travel expenses are all covered. And of course, the drug and the clinical care. And what are the risks associated with participating? Is there a point where lung function diminishes to a point where someone would be withdrawn from the trial and then given treatment? Yes, that's an important point. There's a, there are safety endpoints where patients exit the trial if they cross a certain threshold. And that has occurred in this trial. We've had about 10 patients who have had a decline in their lung function to the point where we first recheck and make sure that the decline is real. But if, if it occurs, and this is generally a 10% decline in lung function. If it occurs and it's real, then the patient is withdrawn from the trial and offered the drug. And interestingly, not all patients have decided to go on and take the drug because they're asymptomatic. Their lung function is still in the normal range, even though it's descended within the normal range. And they've just decided to continue to follow their lung disease expectantly, which kind of highlights the dilemma we're in. We'd like to be able to tell those patients whether that's a wise idea or not. You know, if the drug is safe and effective, it would be a better idea to prevent further decline. But if, if the side effects are unreasonable and the drug is only partially effective at the dose we're using, then, you know, a different advice applies. You make a very good point about safety and we're, we have a very close attention in this trial to patient safety and patients are being removed if we think that they're declining. Is there any other details about the trial that you'd like to share? Well, just that I think the only reason we have a drug for LAM is because courageous patients stepped up you know, 10 years ago and enrolled in a trial where they knew the drug was promising. They knew this drug made complete sense and you could go to any doctor and get a prescription for the drug and start taking it yourself. But these patients decided to enroll in the trial for a period of two years at the risk of declining up to 20% over that time course if they were on placebo and answered you know this question once and for all we need to answer the question of whether this drug should be used in, used in a prophylactic manner like we use for hypertension and other things and diabetes we need to know whether we should be starting right away and this trial will answer that question and through the courageousness of patients that so we'll be able to answer this question for those interested in getting more information about the trial where should they go well, i'll give you a couple of email addresses so mine is frank.mccormack at uc.edu and the lead coordinator is susan mcmahon actually she's now sellers but her email is still mcmahon it's susan.mcmahon m-c-m-a-h-a-n at uc.edu or you can call uh, the pulmonary offices at the University of Cincinnati at 513-558-4831. We'll be sure to include all of that information too in the show description so that people have access to it. So while I have you, I have two final questions outside of the trial. My first question is, in your mind, what are the big unanswered questions about LAM and our understanding of it? You know, we know so much of pulmonary diseases. LAM is at the forefront of progress in terms of molecular understanding of the disease. And what's lagging is are, are the treatment and, and clinical uh, advances. What we have is a suppressive drug. What we need is a drug that induces some, uh, remission. We're not killing LAM cells. We're making them behave better. But what we need is a drug that will actually eliminate LAM cells so that the destruction of the lung ceases and that the drug therapy can stop 
in much the same way as many cancers are treated. So a remission-inducing drug is the goal. My final question for you is, what other research in LAM is going on right now that really excites you? Well, along the same lines as this point about remission-inducing therapies, there are some strategies for treatment that are being developed in the laboratory that actually do kill lamb cells. I'm most excited about those. Some of them are possible using repurposed drugs, you know, if, if in fact they ever make it to, to a clinical trial. So I'm, I'm very excited about the potential to develop remission-inducing therapies. And the other thing we really need is a way to quantify the total body burden of lamb cells. Lung function is not a great endpoint for trials. It's effort-dependent. It's variable. We need a better endpoint. So a PET scan for lamb is sorely needed. And we've been working on that for decades, trying to find a way to image lamb cells that are so similar to normal cells that it's difficult to differentiate the two. So I think if we had that, we'd be able to accelerate trials greatly because we'd be able, we'd know whether we were hitting the target or not much faster than we can learn from lung function testing. You know, another desperate need for the lamb field is, is a better animal model. We've spent a lot of funds at the at the lamb foundation to try to v- develop a model that more closely mimics the human disease. And we have a few mouse and rat models for lamb that are useful, but we need a better one. So an important objective for the future is to develop um, more powerful animal models for the disease. And that model will help you screen drugs preclinically and hopefully translate to faster clinical trials? That's correct. And the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance has set up a preclinical core for this exact purpose. Once we have a good model, we can cycle through various drug options. And not only that, but we learn more about disease pathogenesis. We learn more about what's causing disease and that identifies new targets. So new drug ideas come from these powerful animal models. So there are lots of reasons that we need a better animal model. And, you know, we're going to be working hard on that into the future. Yes, it absolutely sounds like a very important tool to help accelerate breakthroughs in treatment for lamb. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing your expertise with me and sharing more information about this really important trial. I'm glad that we can help spread the word and and help you guys reach your enrollment goal. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to patients with tuberous sclerosis about this important trial. My thanks again to Dr. McCormick for his expert insight on research on lamb and for his incredible dedication to improving the lives of women affected by this disease. I encourage anyone listening to this episode who may qualify for the MILD trial to reach out to the coordinating team for the trial to learn more. You can contact Susan McMahon Sellers at susan.mcmahon, M-C-M-A-H-A-N, at uc.edu or by calling her at 513-558-4376. I'll also include contact information for the trial as well as resources where you can learn more in the show description. Thank you again to UCB Inc. for sponsoring this episode and thank you for listening. I can't wait to join you next month where I'll be recording live from the 2022 World TSC Conference in Dallas. See you then. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. Listen to all our episodes and subscribe to the podcast now at tscalliance.org slash tscnow. See you next time.